Welcome to the Corkscrew podcast on practice research beyond the PhD. This series introduces you to the world of practice-based research both inside and outside academia. Your host is Dr Sophie Hope, a practice-based researcher in the Film, Media and Cultural Studies Department at Birkbeck, University of London. Each episode brings you up close and personal to Sophie and a guest, sharing their experience of working in research conducted through, with and as creative practice. We invite you to listen in to these personal stories and to be inspired. Hello. In this episode, I'm talking to Dr Rachel Han. Rachel completed her PhD in 2010 at the University of Leeds. The title of her PhD is Computer-Based 3D Visualisation for Theatre Research Towards an Understanding of Unrealised Utopian Theatre Architecture from the 1920s and 1930s. Rachel is currently Senior Lecturer in Performance and Design at Northumbria University. So hello and welcome, Rachel. Um, To start with, I thought maybe you could cast your mind back and say a bit about why you wanted to do a PhD in the first place. Introduce us. (laughs) Well, thank you for having me. Uh, It's lovely to be here. And for all those listening in that regard, like the processes that we take to do practice research are always varied. So uh, I'm going to offer a little bit about my own journey. But uh, in some respects, actually, my own journey is maybe the most conventional (laughs) that I could describe as a practice research, particularly working within an academic context. So I was doing my undergraduate, (laughs) which I hadn't taken any time out of beforehand. I was doing my undergraduate. And in my uh, my third year, I got very into using uh, 3D modeling, basically. Uh, and just I was quite into it. And I'd always been quite in, interested in technology led design uh, growing up. And I did a drama degree, but it was very much a degree where you got to do lots of um, very hands on practical design work as well as performing. Although I wasn't so much interested in the performing although I didn't mind doing a bit of stand-up every now and then, which comes in handy when doing lectures, I find. Um, But uh, yeah, I did a project on investigating a theatre maker from the 1920s and 1930s in Russia called Velasov Meyerhold. And I was very interested in uh, an architectural project which he had proposed as part of his um, uh, kind of own practical experiments, but which hadn't been realised, primarily because he was executed by the state in 1940. Uh, this is quite a famous um, kind of point in theatre history, particularly Soviet theatre history. So I was interested in modelling this theatre. And basically, I kind of muddled my way through uh, for a dissertation project, uh, trying to work out how I might use computer-based 3D visualisation, as I came to call it, um, as a research methodology. What was quite crucial to this was that it was kind of very similar to some of the um, the models of practice research that had been developed in the same time period, I was I finished my undergraduate in 2005. So in this period, things like um, PARIP, uh, which I'm, I think is the practice as research. Oh, I can't remember the last two bits of it, but it was a big funded um, project that was just coming into the popular imagination at that point. And certainly ideas of practice as research in theatre and performance, which was my discipline, had been around in the in the mid 90s as uh, a kind of provocation on how we might submit the things to uh, the REF. Obviously, at um, undergraduate level, I wasn't aware of that. But yeah, I I got this project and then I got the external examiner with someone who I've still never met, actually, 
um, uh, basically picked out my project as like one of the most amazing projects that he'd come across, particularly in terms of because I was uh, dyslexic and how I'd communicated my ideas um, without necessarily having the skill set of um, kind of conventional written uh, prose. Even though I tried hard to ensure that that was there, I think they recognised that the the process that I had done had offered insights that complemented um, the written material and maybe even exceeded the uh, what the written material itself was articulating. Mm-hmm. So uh, based on that, I uh, applied to do a research master's at the University of Kent with someone called Christopher Ball. And Chris Ball was very involved in practice research. Uh, he had been a scenographer, an opera director, an opera a scenographer, designer, um, and uh, he had uh, been the at that time, he was also the REF panel chair for uh, theatre performance and dance, or RAE, it was called then, mm-hmm. um, Research Assessment Excellence Framework. Um, and so he was very into thinking about how you might articulate practice-based knowledge. And uh, he then got a call one day and said that he'd been offered a job at the University of Leeds. I had not yet finished my master's and I was his only student at the time. And he basically was incredibly generous and uh, when he um, was made the offer at Leeds, he went back to them and said, uh, I'll come if you can offer my student a bursary. Uh, so I went with him uh, effectively uh, to kind of help build some of this research in um, practice research, but also in computer based uh, 3D visualization. And I did my PhD with him and he was definitely the best thing that has happened to me uh, in my academic career. Uh, he was very, very supportive. Um, he, I always say that I, now supervising PhDs myself, I try and echo mm. the experience that I had with him because whenever I had a supervision with both him and my other supervisor, Scott Palmer, who's also a practice researcher, uh, particularly in lighting design, uh, I always felt that I would go into that, uh, I went into that meeting really kind of precocious and like, yeah, I've got it. Like, I know what I'm doing for my PhD and like, I've got all these things down. They would really be very kind of critical towards me. And they, but I would leave the meeting going, yes, I've got more to do. I thought I'd kind of solved that thing. Now I've got, I realize I've got more to do. I feel motivated. And when I would come to that supervision really low and just feeling a bit broken and like, I don't know this. I don't know how I'm going to find my way through this on one level, maybe I don't even think I can do this, they would build me up and I would leave that room again feeling very motivated. So I really do accredit a lot of my own Mm. um, career trajectory to Chris Bohr and his mentoring of that. Um, And I did my PhD itself on computer-based 3D visualisation, mainly looking at uh, the intersection of methods from archaeology, which is also a very practice-based discipline, Mm. um, and how they have looked to organise and account for standardisation within practice research, within those fields, which was very different from the uh, creative context that I was used to, where almost standardization was the devil. And you wanted to kind of avoid that as much as possible. Uh, What was interesting doing it between effectively theatre history and archaeology was that I found a lot of room for offering creative methods um, as ways of exploring intangible heritage. Um, And this is not unique to my project, um, but I was very, very interested in how we could show process uh, more directly within the outcome. And I developed a website um, called utopiantheatres.co.uk, still available online today. And I, uh, yeah, I developed these visualizations 
Um, as an inquiry-led activity, I tried to literally do practice research in so much that it was, I had the books open while, uh, if you imagine if it's a more studio-based context that you're used to working within, the kind of computer was my studio and it had a three-dimensional kind of screen to it, an interface to it. So it felt very much like a place I was playing in the same way that when I was on my undergraduate, I was kind of doing uh, welding and kind of construction and other design things in studios. I very it felt very tangible. And I was very interested in how that tangible perspective mm -hmm. was translating into how I was interpreting these historical facts and these historical, not facts, I don't believe in facts, mm. but historical um, publications and materials. Can you say a little bit more about the role of archaeology in that process and some of the methods that, that they bring as a discipline to practice mm. research? Yeah, so in particular, they have a, a culture or a, uh, a, uh, a trend of having things called charters. Uh, so the first charter was in like, uh, I think, 1933, called the Athens Charter. And then there was like the Venice Charter. And then the one that I was working with, which is the most recent one called the London Charter. And the London Charter in particular was based around how do we solve the problem of having really persuasive visualizations of the past um, that look like they should that's what they should be, but are based on conjecture. So they're based effectively on, you might call it creativity, you might call it um, informed conjecture is one of the phrases they use, but effectively there are multiple ways in which that data could have been interpreted. And that this researcher who did this modeling process decided to do it this way yeah so they, they have these charters which on one level offer um principles so each of them have a series of principles that only like um well the principles themselves or often there's like between eight and uh, 11 or 12 and they're very much about ensuring things like that you show your pros you show the, the, the you identify the sources that you've used you have clear research questions um, you have an identification of the methods that you've used uh, and the ways in which you've used them, any tools that you've used to kind of interpret those methods, um, where um, that data can be accessed. So particularly in terms of the, the archival material that you found or that the material that you're, you're using off, uh, ensuring that that's mapped and that other people can go and find yeah. that stuff if they want so they can see your visualization through that. I, I, I imagine that quite literally in so much that I use little pop-ups um, where pop-ups used to be allowed on browsers uh, to kind of allow you to see the visualization and then see the little pop-ups around it. So it kind of gave you a, a critical lens or a thick description or a thick depiction mm. uh, in, through which to kind of analyze uh, my findings. Um, it also then has a number of things about um, ensuring accessibility so that people can kind of access this material in different ways. Uh, what they do say in all of these charters is that not all project needs to hit every single one of these principles, because some of the principles, uh, some projects will be more geared towards accessibility, which means showing all of their data wouldn't be as useful if you're showing that to the public. Uh, so it might be useful if you're showing to someone who's going to reproduce that same archaeological study, but it's not that useful for the general public because mm -hmm. it's too much information effectively. And they maybe don't have the lexicon or the legibility to be able to see what these plans are or to understand what this data set represents mm -hmm. and how it kind of is embedded within your visualization. So ensuring that effectively there are different levels of data being shared to allow someone to still understand that this is not something which is definitive, uh, that it's an argument 
uh, within an academic context, but it's an argument that's based on evidence. Mm. Uh, so I, I see this as quite similar to other kind of creative practice research projects where kind of mapping uh, where you kind of brought the project from, what your influences were, ensuring that the um, the things that you've, the insights that you've kind of gleaned from it, they're the things that kind of magnify uh, when you're looking at the project and when you're encountering the project. And it may be that certain audiences, whether it's um, a general public, whether it's punters coming to your show, whether it's um, uh, uh, examiners for your PhD, uh, but also kind of uh, disciplinary colleagues, all of those people I've just mentioned don't need to see everything because mm. they're not going to be repeating your project in quite that way. So organizing your um, your process documentation up against the final product, um, if that's kind of the, the sort of work that you do, not all practice has a final mm. product, um, is effectively what I learned from the archaeologists. Um, and actually, the archaeologists are really quite open in the way in which they, there's lots of different kinds of archaeologists, mm. basically. And I guess I sat more with those who were into interested in interpretive methodologies and also called processual um, archaeology, where things like mm. going for a walk in a field where it used to be a battlefield offers you an insight into the feeling of those spaces and places, even though it's distant by time, distant by material, um, there's a, an embodied relationship there. And I drew a lot on uh, that kind of research. And the your, do you want to say a little bit more how formative perhaps that time was for thinking through these questions, research questions and problems that you had through this particular practice of 3D visualization and things like how how is it how tell us a bit more about the practice, I suppose, and, and its relationship to research or as it became research. Yeah, so one of the things that was really quickly apparent to me when I started sharing uh, some of my research at conferences and phrasing it within the practice research remit was that I had a an advantage that many practice researchers within my discipline uh, struggled with was that documentation and the thing were the same thing. Mm. Uh, so I wasn't having to kind of think of a documentation strategy beyond the process because I, I was trying to figure out how to show the process, which actually that's quite that was quite challenging. Um, but the because I was creating visual material, it's a bit like kind of being a photographer in that respect. Like I'm creating documents which are legible as the thing rather than a kind of interpretation of the thing. So when thinking about performance, obviously when kind of recording performance, that recording of the performance becomes another kind of artifact that's critically distinct or ontologically distinct from the performance itself. So when I was sharing my material, in some respect, I was offered the luxury of um, not having to be so concerned by documentation and more interested in not just kind of how a charter uh, structure and a loose charter structure had informed my research process, but also how it had given quite clear direction to me. And I got to decide how I was going to shape my practice based on this charter. Um, it gave me quite a lot of confidence and clarity of saying, well, this is why I've done this and this is why I've done that. Whereas some of the other practice researchers I was working with, because of this kind of, um, I would say, a radical bent of practice research, which is very much almost, as I said, like anti-standardization, um, kind of critical of uh, conventional modes of thinking, um, but in a good way, in a playful way as well, I think often, um, and a productive way. 
Yeah, I, I kind of sat slightly differently uh, to those other colleagues. I had other sorts of concerns. I had a luxury is what I would describe it mm. as. The documentation, the thing I was doing was so closely combined, mm. even though my project was actually on how I want to show you, I want to kind of unpick that documentation because how you first read it isn't actually that useful because you see it as the actual past and it isn't an actual past. Mm. It's an interpretation, it's an argument of what a past could have been like, could have felt like. Um, so yeah, I think for me, the practice itself, I was very much kind of uh, using a piece of software called 3D Studio Max um, uh, by Autodesk and a bit of um, uh, Photoshopping as well to create textures, although textures wasn't what I focused on in the end. And it was very much about kind of getting uh, models of these, different variants of these uh, models up and running. And then me looking at uh, critical context from the time, so mainly kind of letters and accounts of previous performances that this particular theatre director had kind of cited. It was quite useful for me because he had cited previous performances as being directly uh, related to particular architectural elements within the theatre, almost like a, um, uh, a kind of anthology of all of his best hits uh, were kind of here in this architecture. But I was able to kind of go back to some of those previous things, which obviously from the 1920s, there's not that much documentation for them, uh, but there are, he was quite a famous director, so there's quite a lot of material that's still available, even though he was executed. And there was a period of about 15 years after his execution where there was a concerted effort to destroy mm. a lot of the material that had kind of become his legacy, uh, particularly in Russia. Um, and obviously uh, not all of that was destroyed, but um, it was kind of a big part of it. So, for instance, for the actual architectural plans of the theatre, and there were three different variants of it, um, with the final being the most widely described as the most uh, uh, kind of practical, most realistic one. But even that one didn't have an elevation. So the others had elevations, but the elevation for that one had been destroyed or lost or whatever it is. So we only had the ground plan. Uh, for that one and a ground plan that actually evidenced kind of multiple levels so it actually disguised all in one plan so it disguised what was going on on some of the lower levels so I had to kind of interpret a number of these different decisions and kind of show that working so in that respect uh, what I described as paradata documentation paradata was a terminology that came directly from the London Charter effectively process data different from metadata which is data about my data mm. process data is really about showing how and why I've interpreted these things. So it's kind mm -hmm. of a narrative of each each kind of critical decision. Uh, but what I also did was then, after I'd done these sorts of processes, I then went back and kind of retrofitted them into three distinct phases, or what I described as scenarios of interpretation, where I collected groups of critical decisions. And they kind of were sequential, but Sometimes there was a middle uh, version of it, which actually was a different version of the end version. Uh, but I did uh, four, four different case studies for my PhD, but only included three of them in my actual PhD. I ditched one of them because I just felt it didn't, it was useful for me as an initial inquiry, but it didn't actually um, help the overall shape of the thesis. Um, and actually the other three were um, more persuasive in the way in which I'd gone about doing uh, practice documentation. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of included those and just ditched that one at the end. I didn't need it no. actively. I was like, okay, uh, that was quite liberating in a way because I was trying to make it fit and it weren't fitting. You don't um, need to put everything in. This is the... You don't need to put everything in, no. You can make, you make bold decisions. Yeah, I did, I did an iterative process, basically. And yeah, that iterative, iterative process of practice research is how I advise people to do it yeah. now, more generally. But you have clear phases 
where you're kind of building on previous ideas um, and it gives you room to experiment, it gives you room to fail, it gives you room to find ways of articulating things that are difficult to articulate and maybe even three attempts at that. I think it's a really useful yeah. structure for practice research. Absolutely. Um, and maybe moving on in the chrono chronology of things, thinking about your, so you finished in 2010, you got all that done and dusted. Um, what happened next? I started applying for jobs and uh, I, I, I'd been quite clear that I wanted to go into academia, um, uh, maybe uh, unhealthily so in so much I was quite blinkered. Uh, what, what I mean, what I would say is that I, I, I literally lucked out um, because I applied for a number of jobs in my final year. It actually took me four years to do my PhD rather than three. Uh, I did it in four. Uh, mainly, I would argue, because practice research, I think, takes more time. I, I, I've said this a number of times. I do think it takes more time, both to get up to speed with different forms of documentation, which is different from argumentation, uh, but also still doing the lines of argumentation and getting up to speed with that. Uh, and then because I made a website, I spent a lot of time on that website, which was actually different time to making the visualizations themselves. It was how I showed the things that I discovered. And getting myself up to speed with that technically um, took time. Uh, I mean, it, was, it was time well spent, but it, even so, I do think practice research in general takes more time, uh, although I think it can be managed. Uh, and then I got a job at, um, so I got a, my first ever job interview. I went along and went, okay, I'm going to be really precocious because I wasn't expecting to get it. Uh, and I thought, okay, and it was a job as a, a lecturer in performance at the uh, Edge Hill University and somehow I got it and uh, I spent four and a half years there and they were fantastic um, I mean I really got a fantastic schooling in um, mainly kind of teaching um, mm -hmm. and wait, I, I, within this chronology I haven't left uh, university mm -hmm. uh, I, I still haven't left university <laughs> um, so there's this uh, yeah, great schooling in um, the ways in which to engage students who are coming from a variety of different backgrounds. And I look back on those mm. days, I mean, it's not that long ago, but even so, I look back on those days with great nostalgia um, because I really felt like it was going at such a fast speed and I was being put right in the deep end. Um, but it was, yeah, it was a really great experience. They also were looking to basically bring in people who had research experience and they defined me as having someone who had research experience uh, to come in and help grow practice research. And so that was really useful, kind of talking with other colleagues. And you had a variety of different experiences, often uh, who had arrived in the university, say, kind of 10 years prior, um, with lots of energy uh, to develop practice research projects. But that had been uh, the practicalities of working in a university are there's a lot of admin, there's a lot of other pressures, there's a lot of pressures from the students and from the um, university in general to ensure that the students have the most robust education that they can. And you want to just pour all your energy into that. And then at the end of the day, some people just don't have, they don't feel like they have the time uh, for research at the end. Um, and I think that one of the things that we tried to develop was ensuring that, um, first off, that was recognised that this kind of balance of workloads is really important, but also to collectively find space that we can talk to each other about our inquiry. And in fact, there was one uh, particular colleague there who was really interested in uh, drag practice um, called Mark Edward. 
And he's now gone on to do absolutely fantastic things. He's kind of uh, written his book uh, and he's um, a book was actually uh, one of the Palgrave Pivot books, um, which is one of the online books, which um, kind of uh, got pitched around about kind of the about the about 2013 or something like that, uh, which were kind of shorter versions and were really kind of quite ideal for practice research um, projects, which were maybe around about kind of 30, 40,000 words with complementary uh, in the complementary writing style of uh, Robin Nelson. Um, rather than something which was a more full monograph of around kind of 60 plus, um, I think it kind of fit quite well. And his his uh, p- uh, p- uh, pivot books, I think, called uh, Me Search. So it's all about him kind of researching himself. Uh, and he uh, but he did these absolutely fantastic uh, drag based installations in Liverpool. And they were clearly critical and they were clearly kind of analytical and they were clearly uh, engaging with a culture, a very defined culture, but kind of also um, offering an investigation of that culture. I mean, literally within these installations, you would walk through um, uh, basically, uh, he came from Wigan, uh, kind of remade kind of council house flats from the 1970s in Wigan. And you encounter these characters who are kind of living in these spaces. Um, and then you go into these other kind of more surreal spaces with kind of toilets and lots of toilet humor and things like that. But it wasn't, uh, it was kind of like literally a drag life rather than something which was a, a clearly staged performance. Uh, you were encountering this kind of narrative, which is really quite complex and really interesting from a, um, a both a theoretical and a practical point of view. Um, I think one of the critical things there was with Mark's work in particular, I was really struck with how he kind of started with a question, which was a question on what is drag? Uh, and in particular, what might working class drag uh, be? Uh, and working class northern uh, kind of drag, how can that communicate a particular sense of belonging, uh, a sense of um, uh, being an outsider, uh, but also at the same time still being in that culture and still kind of valuing a lot of the same things that that are within that broader um, geographic culture were self-evident. And he's done a fantastic kind of range of things um, since. But uh, I always remember those early conversations I had with him because I could clearly see there was an awful lot of potential there, but finding the route through, um, and he did a practice-based PhD at um, the University of Leeds. So when I when I came from Leeds, he was just starting his PhD. Mm. So I think he just started it as I was leaving. Um, and so he kind of did that part-time pretty much throughout my entire time I was there at um, Edge Hill. I think it took him about five years. Uh, so we had lots of conversations about that. And um yeah, I, I, again, I recognise that when I was doing my own work, I had this kind of luxury of uh, it not being um, kind of documentation coming uh, forthright. Mm-hmm. But I then did a number of uh, projects uh, that were kind of more digital based. So we did a project called The Food Project in about 2013 that started and we did it until about 2017. And that was looking at food cultures and women's experience of food cultures. It was led by a colleague um, called Kathleen Irwin, who's also another practice researcher based in Canada at the University of Regina. Um, And she was very interested in basically recipes and how recipes had been passed down through families and through communities and how the recipes kind of communicated identity in some way. And we were a collection of about seven designers. um, And I was uh, kind of part of that collective as what I kind of, came to describe myself as I want to talk about I want to talk about the ways in which food culture communicates on social media and in particular at the time I was kind of obsessed with people taking pictures of their food Uh, and I was okay let's kind of make an intervention into this culture 
by taking um, pictures of our plates after we've eaten our food. So you can kind of see the, uh, the traces of it, uh, but particularly focused on questions of labor. So that was my kind of initial research question was how can I show the labor of food? Um, and how can I do that through a social media platform, which seems to celebrate the symbol of food uh, rather than the labor of food? So I was very interested in kind of showing um, where the food had come from, uh, the process of making the food, the labor of eating the food, uh, the picture, which then became the archival image of the um, the plate as it's kind of sitting there with its, its kind of forks ready and all of the the sauce is kind of still there maybe but it's kind of a, it's it's ready for washing up basically that's the moment of capture because it also shows the future labor of washing up and then we did this whole project on a social media uh, platform that's now defunct called vine um, of showing kind of documentation of this and using the vine um format a bit like TikTok nowadays actually of it it showed uh, seven seconds i think it was mm -hmm. a video and what we made ourselves the rules of was that we would only uh, show this, we would only document the seven seconds of video, uh, and then we wouldn't try, try and attempt to capture everything because it would be uploading uh, to the um, to Vine basically, and it'd take about kind of a minute or so for that to happen. But anything that happened in that period, we weren't trying to document. So what we ended up with is kind of mosaics. They had like little squares before Instagram, like this little mosaic of all these little moments because it also captured the sound. And it was really wonderful mm. for us to look back afterwards. And we were kind of becoming nostalgic about events that we had done. We'd done these cooking events, basically, and people were doing these cooking events, and I'm documenting it. Um, but it, it didn't capture it all. But what it gave was kind of a sense of things happening. Um, and we became absolutely fascinated with this mosaic um, approach. And the website is still live, but because like when uh, Vine went down, they did promise they would keep up all of the um, videos and things like that, but they're all gone now. Mm. They're all just, it's all dead hyperlinks. And practice research and dead hyperlinks is a quite a common uh, thing. So yes. um, it felt quite kind of usual. But yeah, that, that's an example of a, a project I did relatively soon after, um, which was more collaborative and more performance-based and more ephemerality-based. Um, but uh, yeah. And then, so that was, you were there for four years? Uh, yeah, chill. And then when does that take us to 2015 or so? Yeah, so in 2015, I went to the University of Surrey. Um, and primarily because Surrey had at the time uh, a range of what I, I would describe as world class academics in theatre and performance, um, about kind of uh, eight kind of colleagues also in that uh, had historically been a really fantastic uh, line of a group of people in dance. Uh, but that had slowly, by the time I arrived, basically, there was still some fan, absolutely fantastic kind of world leading dance colleagues there. But that slowly started to, uh, people moved on and they weren't replaced. There were two dance colleagues that remained uh, and they were absolutely brilliant. Um, but it was, a, it was a real shift, basically, in the disciplinary focus of Surrey. And at the same time, uh, Surrey had brought in a conservatoire. Uh, that was kind of in the same town called GSA, Guildford School of Acting. And that was obviously something that had valued uh, and celebrated vocational learning. And we were here kind of uh, valuing uh, academic learning. And there was not necessarily a disjuncture, because I, I really do genuinely think uh, there was lots of crossover, but it was more a, a suspicion of each other. And so it was a very interesting, it was a very different type of institution 
uh, from Edge Hill, which is very community focused. Surrey was much more um, statistics focused. It was like, here's your measures of everything and you need to make sure you hit all these measures. Everything else is kind of interesting, but this measures uh, that matter most. Um, but I was really there to be uh, effectively mentored and schooled by these other colleagues that I just thought produced fantastic work. Um, and uh, particularly uh, Laura Kahlo Melaher, uh, who, who's kind of one of the key figureheads and leaders of the performance philosophy movement. I got to share an office with her um, and just talking to her about practice research queries in particular and how she was in particular kind of thinking through um, lines of travel within performance philosophy of thinking of performance as philosophy, in particular this line of performance as philosophy, which really kind of took Peggy Phelan's provocation from uh, the 1990s of performance as its own ontology or performance in a state of disappearance, and that to record it is to make it something else. Um, I think uh, Laura's work is really a kind of progression of that and probably the most contemporary argument for that in terms of what might be an ontology of performance, particularly in terms of uh, looking at um, performance as and also this argument that uh, theatre thinks and performance mm. thinks. Uh, these are key provocations coming from, uh, uh, I, can't remember, I can't remember the name of the philosopher now, uh, begins with an L. Um, I want to say Lacan, but it's not Lacan. Anyway, um, uh, yeah, so yeah, th th that, so working with those colleagues for me was the main reason of going there. And then I, I now work at, um, at Northumbria, partly because um, I wanted to move back up north. Also, there had been an, what I would describe as an aggressive restructuring. Um, and um, a lot of the colleagues that I went there for had left. Mm. Uh, so I, I felt I also needed to leave uh, for a number of different reasons, uh, which are relatively public record. Um, but uh, I think coming to Northumbria has been, I've only been here uh, uh, just actually just over a year. So I arrived in April mm. last year, which obviously was right at the heart of lockdown. <laughs> and moving from Surrey to uh, the northeast was a, a real experience. But it's been absolutely fantastic so far in so much that, um, well, first off, I don't have to leave my house very often. And I'm quite, <laughs> I, like, I like working from home. But um, yeah, been very, very supportive. And um, uh, yeah, it feels like a place where I can thrive. And so maybe, thank you so much for that. I think maybe then to to, to end with, um, if you wanted to say any more, I'm just really interested in how we can continue to do practice research, given some of the some of the challenges and restraints um, uh, that universities throw at us, <laughs> and you know life throws at us. How to how to keep going, and what do you hold on to? Have you got any um, top tips for those of us who are also trying to? continue um you know to keep that integrity to what we're doing and um and, and keep experimenting i suppose what how do you manage it well yeah i think that kind of ethos of keep experimenting um but as the same with any academic work you might produce whether it's a book whether it's a practice research project whether it's an article like the the having a clear set of ideas of where that might lead you i, I think in particular just having a sense in your mind of where's the original contribution here? I don't mean it in a grandiose term. I mean it just in terms of where, how will this help people know more about a problem, a subject, an issue, uh, a question? Uh, and that drives the conceptualization of the project. I think for me, that clarity of uh, intention 
is really what the future of practice research is about. Um, I do, uh, I don't, I mean, retrofitting projects, very practical, and sometimes uh, there isn't really a, a projects, practice research projects can materialize in a range of different ways, but wherever possible, kind of conceptualizing these things from the get-go, that through line will show itself in the final work or in the final submission, whatever it might be. I also think ensuring that we don't um, uh, create a culture of siloing ourselves and seeing ourselves as um, distinct in so much that we don't talk <laughs> to other groups, possibly within our own disciplines, if not even outside of our disciplines. I think certainly one of the things that practice research needs, practice researchers will get better at in the future is talking more with other disciplines about how they do practice research, but also communicating the vitality and importance of practice research within their own disciplines. Um, and I don't mean that in terms of that people don't agree with it. I think uh, I think there's majority understandings now that people agree with it. It's more the fact that sometimes people struggle to find examples which they say, yeah, that really encapsulated what I would understand as that argument. Uh, often because of the way in which they're shared rather than necessarily the project itself. Um, there's a, a new report coming out by um, an organization called Practice Research uh, Advisory Group. I call it Prague, but that's because I'm originally working class. Uh, some people pronounce it as Prague. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, that has a second section, has two reports. One's called What is Practice Research? And then the second one is called uh, How to Share practice research mm -hmm. and I think that the how to share practice research is a good it, I think it should be published uh, I was expecting it to be published yesterday to be honest so okay. it may have already been published on the um, British Library website and I, I suspect they'll be announcing these things on various networks soon um, but it's that second it kind of offers a number of technical steerage on how to share things particularly through things like Figshare uh, that gives you a DOI for each independent media object and you can bring those together in another website or in another item and you can cite the DOI and that basically that media item becomes citable in the same way that an article is citable and um, so it's a really useful archiving tool. Uh, there's also an argument that things like Google Scholar and uh, a thing called SCORE uh, should introduce a metadata tag for practice research projects so we can find each other a lot easier. That's one of the key challenges is finding each other. Mm. I'm really hopeful that the next REF website will have a tag for practice research, which will enable you to identify projects which have defined themselves as practice mm. research in some way, shape or form, because the old REF website from 2013, uh, while it does have an archive of projects and you can, if you spend your time yeah. going through it, it's so difficult. To yeah, find you have. Them. Yeah, you, it's 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 not searchable. It's not searchable. Yeah. So I'm hopeful the next one will be searchable. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, it's, effectively, it comes down to a government project. So you can't rely on mm. it being something which is useful in the future. Mm -hmm. Rachel, that is so helpful. So many useful references and ideas. And um, yeah, great to hear your experience and how you've managed to pull so many people together and support so many people through that process and that period as well um it's really encouraging um well i think we'll leave it there unless you've got any other thoughts or questions no i mean it's it's lovely to kind of connect with you again sophie and um i only hope that we can see each other again in person at some point oh that would be lovely that would be really nice <laughs> and our students as well bring our students together would be nice ways to find do that
Yeah, oh, oh, definitely. I know that my students would love to hear more about your work, so I might get you in contact about that. Yeah, great. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you for listening to the Corkscrew Podcast, brought to you by Birkbeck University of London. If you'd like to join the conversation, visit our website in the show notes and sign up to our email list.